I want the reader to be curious about where Ruby is. That is very important. Yes, Bianca did that. And yes, it works. Is it enough? Absolutely not. In that first chapter, you also have the alarm sounding and all the witches coming together to deal with the on the page, the thing that is happening, the thing that they understand fully what it is because a mob is coming to the mansion. They want to tear the mansion down. So having these layers in a story to me, exemplifies having that writing that is ready for publication, traditional publication, I should say, because of course, anyone can always go down other paths, which are incredibly meaningful too. Again, I I read a lot of submissions, right? And a lot of times I see, okay, you have one layer, maybe you have two, but you don't have all the layers that you need. And yeah, you need all the layers. If you want to make it in this incredibly competitive business, you need all the layers. So I think that that book is a really good example of what to do, how to do it, and in a way that's also super entertaining because you're reading that and you're going, oh my gosh, I'm having so much fun. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Manch, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. And also to learn how to write the best manuscript possible in order to hook that literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is passionate about helping writers understand how to blend business with passion so that they can achieve their writing dreams and hopefully continue to build an author career with their dream agent. I'm really excited and really lucky to share today's guest. I think writers are going to be ecstatic for who I'm bringing on. It is none other than the wonderful, brilliant Cece Lira. She is one of three co-hosts for the fantastic podcast and wildly popular podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. She's also co-host with Carly Waters, who's been on the podcast before, and the wonderful Bianca Murray, who is an author. We cover a ton of great material in this conversation, from brainstorming sessions to the importance of reading to how to become a better writer to how to examine ourselves with privilege, to why CC is such a great agent for writers. And I could go on and on and on. I will include links to CC's website and some other articles that we discussed in the show notes. So if you're writing notes as you listen to this and you feel like, oh, I missed something, don't worry. I'm going to include all of this in the show notes for you so that you can find those resources and do even more research on CC if she sounds like she is the agent for you. In case you're unfamiliar with who CC is, Cecilia or CC Lira is an associate literary agent at PS Literary Agency representing adult fiction and nonfiction. CC is drawn to books with strong hooks and smooth writing told with originality, nuance, and authenticity. A long-term strategic thinker, CC prioritizes the creative reach and sustainable longevity of her author's careers, and she is especially looking for clients with whom she can build fruitful, lasting relationships. Both a storyteller and a story seller, Cece believes that stories are empathy-generating machines capable of healing, connecting, and enacting true change. As a mixed-race Latinx immigrant, Cece understands the power of seeing oneself reflected in books, hence her passion for championing under or misrepresented voices and narratives that contribute to a larger cultural conversation. The popular podcast, as I've mentioned, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, is one that CC co-hosts and has over 1 million downloads. 
Cece is also a recovering lawyer, but asks that you do not hold that against her. When she isn't living inside the story, Cece can be found drinking wine, munching on chocolate, and snuggling with her adorable English bulldog. If you don't have a notepad ready for today's conversation, I recommend you grab it. You're about to learn a lot, and I'm excited to bring you Cece today. Hi, Cece. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here, and I'm sure many listeners are, as you are this wonderful host. They've heard your voice before with the fabulous podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. So I'm thrilled to have you here in an interview setting and get to pick your brain. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. This will be so much fun. Before we get into any interview, I do like to start off by asking how you came to become a literary agent. And if you could just share with the listeners a little more about your career and your trajectory of that path. Yeah. My path to publishing was not a linear one. And it's interesting because when I shared this story in in one-on-one calls with editors, especially, I often hear, you know what? My path was not linear either. So I just think that there's no such thing as a linear path, even if you do go down the traditional route. So for me, I've always loved books. I've always loved stories. One thing that my mom famously mentions till this day is how she had to essentially scold me to stop reading. Like most most mothers, I think, would be thrilled, but my mom was like concerned because she thought it was too escapist. I spent way too much time with my nose in a book. I didn't want to do anything other than read, and which I get probably was not, you know, necessarily healthy in her view. But I was just having the time of my life. So I've always been a bookworm. I've always been obsessed with stories. I've always enjoyed not just reading stories, but dissecting them, um, trying to figure out why a story was as compelling as it was. However, when I grew up, if that's even a thing. Working in publishing was never an option for me. I did not think that I could go down a a career path that was famously financially unstable. I thought that I had to do something mainstream. I thought that I had to do something that would necessarily make me a really good living. And I've always been a debater. Like I've always been very confrontational and even things like at the dinner table, I would argue with that all the time, which I think is a good thing. I don't think that that's a bad thing at all to, to be that kind of person. So because of that, people kept telling me, you should be a lawyer, you should be a lawyer. And I think that, honestly, as a kid, the expectation of me was always that I was going to be a lawyer. Like I never examined it, which I do not recommend. I very much think that people should examine their career choices. But the truth is that I did not. And so when I went down that path, law school, working as a lawyer, now when I think about it, I go, oh, that person was was doing that for external reasons. That person was doing that, the person being me, right? Like that person was doing that so that people could admire her. She was doing that to make her father proud. She was doing that to have an easy answer when people asked, what do you do? She was feeding off people feeling impressed when, or at least looking impressed when, when she gave that the answer to the question, what do you do? That person was not a fulfilled person. When I say I wasn't happy as a lawyer, a lot of people think that, you know, I woke up and I was miserable in my job. It's not what it looked like. I enjoyed the prestige. I enjoyed the money. I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed the intellectual stimulation. I enjoyed getting things done. I enjoyed getting promoted. Like I enjoyed the fruits of the labor. I don't think anyone enjoys the labor in corporate law. It is too boring for that. There is no way that there's actually someone out there who's thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, this offering memorandum for this 
IPO. This is just so interesting. I don't think that happens. Maybe I'm wrong. But I just thought that that is what life is supposed to be. I am very lucky to be married to a very supportive man who sees me for who I am. And when we were at a moment in our lives, due to personal circumstances, that I was going to have to get a new job anyway. We were moving. I was going to have to change to some degree. He asked me, he was like, look, why don't you that thing that you always talk about as a dream? Why don't you take some time to breathe, to spend all day reading, which is what you want to do? And when I, and when I did that, he made a joke one day. He said, oh, I'm married to another woman. And I was like, what? Are you telling me something that I should be worried about? He's like, no, no, you are the other woman. Like, he's <laughs> a different person. You're smiling all the time. You know, my friends who know me only in this new life, they see me in a completely different way from my friends who knew me back then. I'm still me, but there's parts of me that I get to be now. Yes. That sounds so woo-woo, but I stand by it. Um, and so, yeah, again, personal circumstances took some time. And when I was taking that time, I was writing because I, I love being creative. And eventually, after some time, I thought to myself, you know what? I miss the the business side of this. I do like that part. I do like having lots of emails to check and putting out fires and negotiating. But I also like the creative side. So what do I do? How do I reconcile these two theses, essentially? And the answer was so clear to me. It was agenting, right? You get to be so creative and you get to be so business-oriented. So I went back to publishing school, was the only person in their mid-30s in that class. Actually, that is there were like two other people. But all my new friends, all of a sudden, were 22 and they were so wonderful. And... I had this moment. I remember sitting in the classroom and looking around and going, oh God, this is my career now. Or it's going to be, right? I was still in school, but I had every reason to believe that it would be. And I just had this moment of joy doesn't even begin to describe it. I felt elated. I felt beatific. I felt like, I don't even know. You felt like yeah. you're coming into your purpose. Yeah. Yeah. That is what it was. Yeah. So now here I am. Since then, the podcast has happened and I've joined PS Literary Agency and it's just I signed Bianca, who like, I was a fan of Bianca's books before I was an agent. The day I signed someone whose books I used to read for fun mm -hmm. was the day that I was like, okay, if I die today, I die happy. <laughs> so great. I love what you're saying about, you know, finding the marriage really between the two types of use. I th constantly, whenever when you're talking, I constantly thought about Michelle Obama's Becoming memoir and how we are. We're constantly becoming. So I love that you are brave enough to follow your heart and find that purpose and whatever that is. And, you know, those lawyer skills, they come into play big time as you go into contractual negotiations and all of those things that take a lot of attention to detail. So I love it. And now you get to read more all the time and sign those great authors that you're fans of. So that's wonderful. A big part of Lit Match is that we're helping writers find the best that are agents for them. Ideally, ideal clients are going to start querying you once they hear this interview. And to do that, of course, we need to understand what's on your manuscript wish list. So what currently is on your manuscript wish list and why are you looking for those specific stories? Gosh. Okay. So I want to say right off the bat that I represent adult fiction and nonfiction. If you write middle grade, if you write YA, if you write picture books, that's amazing. I am, however, not the agent for you at least not at this stage in my career. So within the adult fiction and nonfiction spaces, my taste is really eclectic. I like dark, really, really dark and gritty. I also love fun and uplifting. And the one thing that all the books that I like and that I'm looking for have in common is in some way 
they make you feel empowered. It doesn't have to be a story of empowerment that's on the surface. It can be subtle, right? But I finished that book and I go, oh my God, I went through a transformation. And maybe mm-hmm. the reader, not just the character, right? Like the protagonist should always go through a transformation. So whether that's upmarket literary fiction, whether that's a cozy mystery, whether that's horror or a rom-com, sci-fi, fantasy. I will say that for sci-fi and fantasy, I like light on the world building. Like a story filled with like dragons is amazing, but it's probably not for me. On the nonfiction side, that's psychology, that's politics, that's history, that's journalism. Honestly, there's nothing in the nonfiction space that I would not read for sports, I think. Not like even true crime. I say that it's not for me, but I might still like it depending on on the framing. I think the issue with true crime is that a lot of of true crime submissions aren't developed and probably developed in my experience anyway. So what I'm looking for is to be swept away by a story. I very much care about the writing mm-hmm. and the analogy I always use, which I think is really appropriate, is you've probably watched American Idol. I haven't watched it since like the Kelly Clarkson days. So it's That's been a too. long yep. time. <laughs> but like the format, I assume, is pretty much the same. But sure. like there's like, look at all the people who are outside that audition row. Versus however many people actually make the cut. Point is, having an idea for a song is great. Mm-hmm. Being able to sing in the shower is awesome. Having presence is super important. But can you truly sing, right? Mm-hmm. Have what it takes to be a star. And it's the same thing with writing. People tell me all the time, see, I have this great idea for a novel. And then they'll tell me the plot. And they ask me, will that sell? My answer is always, I don't know. Can you write? Imagine if someone were to come to you and say, like, I have this great idea about, for the song, the heartbreak and about empowerment, and about, I don't know, whatever it is. Will that song become a hit? I have no idea. Can you sing? So so I am very much drawn to books that are that really run the gamut. Like I, I'm looking for everything within the adult space, as long as the writing is spectacular. I care about the writing. I will not apologize for that. I'm not the agent who will say, oh yeah, the hook is great, so I'll try. Because I don't want to submit something if I don't believe that the writing is where it needs to be. And I don't just mean the writing on a line level, that's part of it. I mean also the story structure, right? Like the story needs to unfold in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages. That's really important too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I totally understand that. There are books that I pick up and the plot can be entertaining, but if the writing doesn't grab me, it's one I forget about. I might think about it afterwards a little bit, but it just doesn't It doesn't grab me. I'm exactly there with you. I go for the big feels. I want an emotional change. I'm going there for an emotional experience, right? So I really want to feel that source of empathy or escapism, whatever it is, when I'm done with the book and throughout all of it. You've done courses. I think you've led courses, right, on line level and basically good writing, right? How did you become a great writer? Could you give us some advice, an example of one of your clients that you think really is a great writer or how you help your writers achieve that quality of writing that you're looking for? Yeah. So I've never taught a course on writing on a line level, but I have taught courses on the craft. I've taught Mm -hmm. courses on writing interiority, writing tension, conflict stakes, and also writing emotion. Writing emotion Mm -hmm. is my favorite. Although I do like the tension one a lot too, because I actually have formulas to give people. And there's something just very satisfying about being able to boil things down to a formula. But I think I'll use Bianca Camaray's example only because with The Witch's Moonshine Manor, her novel that came out in August, late August, 2022, I got to read that from the very beginning. She sent me the first chapter to make sure that that would be something that I felt I could sell. 
Of course, there are no guarantees. And she knows that she's a pro. But essentially, like, Cece, do you think this this is good, right? Like, do you think that this is working? And because I got to see that book right from the beginning, it was incredibly enlightening experience for a couple of reasons. First of all, I learned that Bianca's first draft is remarkably polished, which is incredible, right? Like, I mean, I guess I assumed first drafts were all like vomit on the page. That is not the case, not for her anyway, but also because I think it allowed me to see how planting curiosity seeds right from the beginning of a book really just makes the reader emotionally invested in the how and why beyond the what. So for example, in the Witches of the Moonshine Manor, right from the beginning, you know that an alarm is going to be sounded. And this is a big deal because the last time the alarm was sounded, one of the witches in the sisterhood died. So of course you're like, okay, this I get that this is important. And you have all these witches, all these different characters to introduce. And again, you know about the alarm, but there is also mentions very carefully placed of Ruby, one of the witches who is missing. Now, when I first read that, I thought to myself, Ruby ran away. I had other theories too, like millions of theories, to be perfectly honest, because that's just how my brain works. But the reason why that first chapter works so well is because, yes, the curiosity seed about Ruby missing, not being there, right? Ruby's supposed to arrive, but maybe she will, maybe she won't. If she arrives, she will be able to fix maybe the situation. But where Ruby is, I think a lot of writers, when they're in the beginning stages of their career, would make their first chapter all about that. You know, I want the reader to be curious about where Ruby is. That is very important. Yes, Bianca did that. And yes, it works. Is it enough? Absolutely not. In that first chapter, you also have the alarm sounding and all the witches coming together to deal with the on the page, the thing that is happening, the thing that they understand fully what it is because a mob is coming to the mansion. They want to tear the mansion down. So having these layers in a story, to me, exemplifies having that writing that is ready for publication, traditional publication, I should say, because of course, anyone can always go down other paths, which are incredibly meaningful too. Again, I, I read a lot of submissions, right? And a lot of times I see, okay, you have one layer. Maybe you have two, but you don't have all the layers that you need. And yeah, you need all the layers. If you want to make it in this incredibly competitive business, you need all the layers. So I think that that book is a really good example of what to do, how to do it. And in a way that's also super entertaining because you're yeah. reading that and you're going, oh my gosh, I'm having so much fun. Yes. The layers are what make it rereadable in the sense that every time you read it, you're going to learn something that you didn't expect. I mean, those are the books that when I read and I can reread something 10 times and I'm still learning something, that author did an amazing job. Really, what you're saying about layers really hits home with me. On Lit Match, we do these deep dive first chapter analysis and I'll find someone to pair up and do an analysis with. And I did Little Fires Everywhere and the first chapter. And that is so interesting because it's the question we we assume it's Izzy. I mean, of course, there's the possibility that maybe it's not Izzy who burned down the house, but we assume it. So there is that, like you're questioning, where is Izzy? Why isn't she here? But there's so much more in the present moment that's happening. So I love that you pulled out Bianca's first chapter as an example of that, because something has to be happening. It can't just be all theory, right? Absolutely. And, you know, to your point about making it rereadable, yes, I agree. And also, because even if someone were to say, I don't want to reread books, mm -hmm. you still need those layers in order to keep someone reading. Think about it this way. Your book is going to compete with White Lotus on HBO. 
Mm-hmm. Your book is competing with Wednesday Adams on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, just Wednesday. There's no Adams in the title. Your book is competing with major TV shows and major movies. And before someone tells me, no, it's not. It's a book. Yes, it is. It's all storytelling. It's all entertainment. Why should your reader turn off their TV, not spend time with their family on the couch watching TV, right? Why should they do this incredibly isolating act that does not involve sound effects and lighting and special effects and actors and music, just little words, squiggly line, black and white on a piece of paper. Why should that be more compelling? Because of the layers. Because so much is going on. You have to really jam pack it in a compressed way. It's also not about being like a page about this and then a page about that. No, 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 it has to be compressed. And that is a skill that takes a lot of time to master. Mm-hmm. Most of the things that I read that aren't that aren't working for me, in my opinion, it's not a lack of talent and it's also not a lack of hard work. You just need more time. You just need to invest more time in the craft and then eventually you will be ready. Yes. Let's dig into this because this is something that I think has really resonated with the listeners and the shit no one tells you about writing. I've seen many comments about emphasizing how important it is that you and the other hosts, Carly and Bianca, have been talking about that it's not about writing a novel quickly, that it takes time to write a novel. And I think writers, especially with books like write your, you know, these quick fixes, sometimes there are these books that will be out there, these suggestions that you can write a book in X amount of days. And I think there's a false assumption there that then they think the book is done. You know, and it's this idea of maybe that helps get your book started, but the book isn't done. So I'd love to hear you elaborate just on what that means, why you're saying that, and why it's really important for writers to digest that and be okay with it. Yeah, absolutely. I've given this so much thought because as an agent, you see things unfiltered, right? Like if you're an editor at an acquisitions house, the stuff that you're getting has passed through an agent's approval, if that's even the word. But as an agent, you don't have that. You are in the front lines, which I love. I think that's a huge privilege and it's one that I do not take for granted. But it also means that I've spent a lot of try- a lot of time trying to figure out why it is that so many people are querying early. They're they're not like it's not in their best interest, in my opinion. So why are they doing it? These are intelligent people, right? Like they don't want to fail. And I think it comes down to a few things. One is ge- just generally they conflate their previous creative writing experiences with the creative writing experience that they're currently in. What do I mean by that? So the average person, I suppose this is a generalization, but hopefully it's a fair one. The average person has written essays for school, right? And short stories for school, whether school is high school or college or grad school, whether it's an MFA program, super prestigious one even, or whether it's like 10th grade English, it doesn't matter. You write something and your teacher is going to read the whole thing. And then your teacher is going to grade you. If the entire class writes an amazing short story, the entire class gets an A. Guess what? In traditional publishing, the entire class writes a great, great novel. Only one gets bought. doesn't matter if all of them are great. So that nature, that competitive nature of only a few people are going to make it because there aren't enough places, right? I don't think people realize that when they are writing their books, they think, oh, I can do this in three months. I can do this in six months. I'm just going to bang out chapters and my editor will later help me. No, no, you are competing against other people. And unconsciously, your brain 
is remembering the 10th grade English class or the MFA program in which it was possible for everyone to have an amazing short story. I'm not saying that happened, but it is possible. And the teacher has enough A's to give around. The teacher isn't holding a bag with only one A. And then the second thing about that, that comparison, and I do think this happens unconsciously, by the way. I don't think people are going around thinking, this is just like 10th grade English. Of course not. But they haven't examined, in my opinion. The second thing is that your teacher, again, your professor, or your instructor, or whatever, I'm saying teacher, but you know, use whatever word makes sense here, will read it till the end and will give you notes and will tell you what's wrong. In their opinion, of course, this is all subjective. That does not happen when you're querying. An agent will not read your submission till the end. I do not read all 10 pages I get. I always ask for a query letter in 10 pages. I don't get to the end of all the 10 pages. If I start reading and it's not grabbing me, I stop. Do you know why I stop? Because when I send it out to an acquisitions editor, they are also going to stop. Acquisitions editors at publishing houses do not read the whole submission they get. They start, they dip in. If it grabs them, they continue. If it does not, they put it aside. And I don't think, again, it's all unconscious. I don't think people get that. I think people unconsciously conflate these experiences and they go, I will just do my job. I'm going to finish writing this because it is really hard to write a novel. It is so hard. It's the easiest part of the process. I'm going to tell you right now, but it's still so hard. And people think, well, I have to be efficient. How many words did I get in? I'm not suggesting that thinking about efficiency shouldn't also be a factor, but efficiency is not the goal, right? The goal is the best novel. You are doing a service to your book, not the other way around. You are working for your book, not your book is working for you. This is really important to understand. So I think that's where it comes from. And I've given this, again, like I said, a lot of thought. And I honestly think that just adopting the right mindset, I call it the storyteller's mindset, is essential to succeed in publishing. You might be the most talented person and most hardworking person. If you don't have the right mindset, If you don't understand the competitive stakes, if you're not strategic, if you don't have long-term thinking, in my opinion, it's going to be really hard to truly make it because all competitive industries, think about sports. Is it just being really good on the field? No, you also need the mental work, right? That's why it's so important for athletes to have coaches who also see their minds. It's why they huddle together. I don't know anything about sports, so probably this is not the best analogy, but it's why mental work is so important in sports because it's not just about performing. If you're feeling off that day and if you don't you don't know how to get your your head in the game, you're going to do a bad job with whatever the ball sport is. I don't know anything about sports. What you're saying here is really important because this is a big reason why I was even motivated to create Lit Match was to blend business and passion. Because there's a difference in if you're writing a book for your family, do it. There's a therapeutic and meaningful gift that comes out of writing in whatever form that is. If you're journaling just your gratitude for the day, do it. Like It is going to better your life by putting your words and your thoughts down on paper and letting you process it that way. However, if you want to go traditional publishing or publishing in general, whatever way you do it, but especially traditional publishing, It is a competitive business. I remember, and I've seen it, Carly has shared this on her Instagram before. She represents about 0.001% of everyone who queries her. And that's the reality of it, exactly what you're saying, because when you send that off to an editor, they will stop because they're getting all of these submissions when you go to market. So it does have to be at its peak before it goes to market and figuring that out. 
I've heard that agents can tell within the first sentence of not first three sentences, if they're going to continue or not, maybe it's not that quick or not. But like you said, you might not get through all of the 10 pages and figuring out with writers, eventually they have to reach this place of I've done what I can. And then they go off to query. How do they, and I get this question all the time, how do they know when they're ready? What is their peak? You know, how can they know in their hearts and on paper, this is the best I can do and I need to send this off today. I just want to very quickly backtrack and say that I was like applauding you here. <laughs> I was muting myself so that, you know, the sound wouldn't wouldn't get in the way, but I was applauding you here when you said, if you want to write for your own therapeutic or familial <laughs> or whatever, like personal goals, please do it. That is amazing. I am cheering you on. I genuinely think there is my most favorite form of therapy. And I have tried lots of therapy. Lo- I love that. However, again, to echo what you said, you want to make it into this competitive market, then you get your head in the game. So to answer your question, there's two, there's two answers and they're both true. The first answer is there's no way to know. Okay, I'm so sorry. This is not a formula. I cannot tell you. You're ready when you're at 87. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? There's no 87. There's no numbers, right? To a degree, we must be okay with not knowing because this is subjective and because it's matchmaking. I need to love something to sign it. How do you make me fall in love with your writing? I don't even know. And I'm the one who falls in love oh, when I see it. So that's the first answer. The second answer, however, also true. And I honestly think, again, this is about the storyteller's mindset. I wish everyone could, could understand this. If, if they agree, of course. The second answer is, can you see anything wrong with it? And be honest, because here's what happens to me all the time. I read something for like... I, I, I often participate in like Manuscript Academy conferences. There's an MFA program that I'm going to speak to the other, at, at the end of the month. And I read pages for them, right? And I offer feedback. So I'll read something and pages are good. And I think to myself, you know what? Maybe with a little bit of work, this could be ready for an agent. So I will actually give the author feedback. It is very rare that I do this, but I have done it. Whether it's in a Manuscript Academy setting or in a traditional setting. Or in the podcast, because I... Do this all the time in the podcast too. Read a little bit and I tell the writer, in my opinion, these are the, let's just say, three things you need to work on. And I'll illustrate my points with text-based examples. Do you know what I hear all the time in return? And I and when I say all the time, I'm talking like over 90% of the time. My gosh, JC, I knew that. I knew that. I just needed someone to tell me. They're not saying... Oh, now that you've said it, it makes sense. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, yep, I had a feeling. I just wish, kind of hoped that I was wrong. In my opinion, in order for you to be this talented as a storyteller, to be there, to be close to being there, you're an intelligent person. Intelligent people know. They know. They know that their writing on a line level is full of repetition and they haven't, you know, edited their sentences as much as they should. They know that they haven't infused the first pages with the tension that they have to. They know that they're spending too much time talking about backstory. They know, but they're anxious and they're putting their anxiety over their ambition and they're sending it out because they're telling themselves, I just need to know I've spent so much time working on this story and yeah, I love it, but I'm tired and I just, I need to know. Plus they listen to this one interview from this one person who actually did make it with a manuscript that wasn't ready because that does happen. In my opinion, how do you know? You know. Go actually listen to that little voice in your head The one that, yes, might be a little annoying, but that's usually right. And go pay attention to that voice. 
Now, of course, there's also other things I could say. I could say share it with beta readers, share it with critique partners, share it with an editor if you are able to do so. And it's not that these things aren't valuable because they are. But again, I have done this long enough that I keep hearing all the time, I knew that, I knew that. Thank you for confirming what I already knew. And I go, why if you knew this? And by the way, I'm guilty of it too because I'm also a human being. So I am not saying this from an ivory tower. I am saying this right in the trenches with everyone. I get it. I, I have often found myself putting my anxiety over my ambition. I try not to. I try to live my life ambition over anxiety. But I'm a human being too, so I understand. Yeah, no, I understand that too. It's interesting because we get tired, right? You go through so many drafts. I did an interview with Kirsten Chen and she said that Counterfeit went through 14, 15 drafts. And what a strategy that she liked about it is that she fo- had a different focus, a different concentration each draft, which I think is a smart way of attacking multiple drafts because then you don't feel exhausted by everything all the time. But yeah, I think intuitively, I do think that you can teach writing. I think that you can teach explicit knowledge, like but basically build explicit knowledge from these masters. But implicitly, we understand how to write because we understand storytelling is told in patterns. And through that, we understand what we like and what we don't like. And the same thing comes to language. I like to say that we have invisible mentors in the authors that we love. For me, that'd be Frederick Backman, Jody Pico, Matt Hay, Kristen Hanna. Like, I love how they write. So it's one of those where if you were to read your manuscript out loud, do you stop? It's one of those strategies. And probably speaking right back to that intuitiveness. It's interesting. You've talked about comparing manuscripts. I really love, I pulled this out from an article. You were interviewed in Latinos in Publishing. And you shared that this is something that you wish you had known before the industry. And that was about statistics. And you said, I knew it was a competitive, this is a quote, I knew it was a competitive industry and I'd done quite a bit of research, but consolidated and comprehensive hard data on this industry is difficult to come by. And I find that making it available would be immensely helpful to both creators and publishing professionals. And that's the end of the quote. And that really stuck out to me because if we are trying to blend business and passion, if we are trying to master our craft, but then also understand this is a hard business, this is going to be competitive. We try not to compare ourselves to already published books because those are published, those have been through rounds with editors, those have been worked on with agents. There has been stages that as a querying writer, you have not gone through that yet. However, our goal is to get to that point. So building an awareness of how the industry works is crucial for our enjoyment, really, of publishing books. I'm always looking for more information. I'm always looking to find more research and information on this hard data, exactly what you said. And then I go to the the go-to resources, Jane Friedman. She has the hot sheet. She's a genius. How she finds the statistics, then that's where I'm going. How do I find those statistics on my own, though? Do you have any advice to writers out there who are really starting to understand the business and tackle the business? How did they go in here with knowledge of how to look for those statistics and what that might mean in order to help them prepare themselves for what publishing a book really is. I think there are two two sides to this. I think the first is if you want to understand it as a writer from the point of view of how hard it is to get your book traditionally published, then it's not, when I say it's not that hard to understand, what I mean is the actual number, whether it's 0.1 or 0.2 doesn't quite matter as much. It's more about having that awareness that it's really hard. To that end, I would say, do what you can, because I understand that it's harder for, for certain people in certain circumstances, but do what you can to find community. 
even if it's just an online community, because, you know, online communities are actually quite great. I enjoy it. Because when you are in a community, you can share insights and feedback and resources, and you can see that everyone is going through the rejections. Even the people with the success stories, they went through rejection. One, find community. Two, read. Read lots and listen to podcasts, like your, your own podcast. Because... When you do these things, when you when you hear about the stories that are now success, success stories, but that you find out their origin story, what they had to go through to get there, in that case, when you do that, you do you do have a better understanding of this is not a linear path. And then I would also say, I used to love, and I still love, I still subscribe, Writer's Digest. I think they do a really good job, the magazine, of, I'm like old school. I read magazines. Like I hold magazines. I read them. I love them. I'm a big, big fan of magazines. So I do think that Writer's Digest does a really good job of explaining it. But at the end of the day, think about it this way. This is really what you should know. And if you know this, you're fine. Getting traditionally published is a lot harder than getting into Harvard. That's what you should know. Getting into Harvard, I think their approval rating is 3%, meaning of everyone who applies, only 3% get in. And the people who are rejected have perfect scores and perfect SATs and perfect transcripts and perfect everything. If you understand that it's harder, you're good. You don't have to understand more. You don't have to know each agent's success rate. Like you don't need that. It's not for now. It's honestly just going to bog you down, in my opinion. But then the second part of that is, do you want to understand how tough this industry is for all players? Meaning how hard it is to make it as an agent, how hard it is to make it as an editor, how hard it is to promote a book. I respect publicists so much because it is so hard to get people talking about books in a world where you have TikTok and Instagram and film and TV. So if you want to understand that, then I'm just going to unfortunately not be very helpful here and say, I agree with you. The Bible is Jane Friedman's The Hot Sheet. I am in no way affiliated with Jane. I've never even spoken to her. I hope I will someday because she's awesome. But I love the hot sheet. And it actually, to answer your question, how does she get all that data? She's super transparent about it. When you read the hot sheet, you have these links where she says, where she'll share her sources. And I actually recommend that people read the hot sheet. Yes, but also read the links within the hot sheet. Now that is super time consuming because part of the appeal of what Jane brings is that she compresses and condenses the information in a digestible way. Good job, Jane, because I love digesting your hot sheet. But at the same time, reading the primary links that she shares is super important. So you'll find links to, I don't know, the bookseller or New York Times or whatever it is, and just read those too. Like consume that information because it is really important to know the statistics. Now, I, I still, what I said in, in, in the interview that you mentioned is still true. There is no place that condenses everything in a very, very clear way because we don't have also those numbers. There's very little transparency in publishing. It's getting better, but it's still not anywhere where it needs to be. Absolutely. With all of this and figuring that out, I love that you're saying go read the links because preparation is key with anything. I think that the more that you have an awareness of just how competitive this is, I didn't know that statistic about it's harder to get published than Harvard. So that's, wow, mind-blowing, Can I right? interrupt? You yes. did, though. Because did. you knew, yes, you had Well, I did, I did know that. I guess I did know the 0. 0.00. There you go. And you knew yeah. that Harvard wasn't 0. 0.000, or at least you, right. you can surmise, right? Like you you can probably like guess that. So you did, you yeah. just didn't think about it. I there, think people don't think about things like that because it, yeah. why would they? If, regardless of that, it's super competitive, right? And I think the fact there with how competitive it is, the more that we're aware of this, because I think writers take rejections or can take rejections personally, and we have to remember that a no to your manuscript or a no to your query 
isn't a personal rejection. It's because this is a business and agents specialize in certain things and editors are looking for specific books and the market is real. And it's not personal. Like You can be a really talented writer, but maybe your book won't sell. And of course, that's discouraging. But I think it was a quote in, I don't know if you've seen Tick, Tick, Boom, but I loved that one. And there's a quote at the end where the agent is talking to the main character and she's like, you throw things at the wall and hope something sticks and you write the next one and you write the next one. And if you are in this for the business, you have to have that momentum you had talked about earlier. We're not looking for one book deals in most cases. Is that the case for you? A million percent. I am hoping to sign people who will stay with me for the duration of their career. Are they obligated to? Absolutely not. If they don't want to, I don't want them to because I want people who want me. But when I sign a client, I am definitely keeping that in mind. It is my hope that I will be their dream agent for the duration of their career. And the same goes for for me. I hope that they will continue to be my dream client for the duration of my career. I think there is a lot to be said about, I do believe very much that publishing is a just keep swimming industry. This is a term that Andrea Bartz talked about in her own journey. She obviously has tremendous success, but she has had failures and Mm -hmm. she attributes her current success to her just keep swimming mentality. And I very much believe that. I also think that it's important to keep in mind that there's a difference between persistence and insistence. Mm. Insistence is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, which most people believe is a definition of insanity. Or at least some people believe that. Persistence means you're pursuing the same goal. You're not taking your eyes off the prize. But you, you'll pivot if you have to. You'll try new formulas or new recipes. If I'm preparing a dish and the dish is coming out bad from the oven, like it just tastes bad, I'm not going to do the same thing over again. I'm going right. to try something new. I'm going to swap the ingredients or add more of this or less of that. It's a lot less objective when it comes to writing a book, and I'm mindful of that. But persistence, yes. Insistence, in my opinion, no, at least not for too long. I think that's a great observation. And recognizing when we're being insistent versus persistent is an important step in growing our craft and growing ourselves as writers. Which is why I say that the mentality, the mindset, if your mindset, if your head isn't in the game, it doesn't matter how talented you are, honestly. Right. A skill to start figuring out with this persistence and if things aren't working, why they might not be working, how can we get better at our craft? You've emphasized how important it is to read and to read broadly, I would probably say, if I could build on that. So I think we've heard this before. If you've been in this business for a while, you're not going to be a great writer if you're not a reader. But how do we read like writers? Oh my gosh, I love this question because yes, in my opinion, there is no better way to improve your own writing than to read like a writer. Through the podcast, we have this book club called Books with Hooks Book Club. And essentially I dissect the books. The first thing I would say is you have to read more than once to read like a writer. You have to also make notes. I'm so sorry for the people who don't like making notes, but I don't know any other way to do it. Maybe you do and that's amazing and I hope you do. But for me got to take notes. First time you read, those notes are going to be focused on visceral reactions. When were you curious? Don't worry about the why. Not now. Just when. But when. When were you curious? When were you confused, if ever? When were you forming a theory? When did that theory get debunked? When was a new theory formed? When, 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 when. Don't worry about the how. Don't worry about the why. Just the when. Make note of your impressions as a reader. Then the second time you read that book, Take the book, but also your notes and go back to those parts. And then now that you already know the plot, right? 
Now you go, okay, wait, so I was really curious here. And I was thinking that, for example, to go back to Bianca's example, I was really curious about Ruby, where Ruby was and why she has been gone for so long. And I thought she had run away. Why did I think that? And then I find that sentence that made me think that. And I realized why that sentence was so intentional and why that sentence was crafted in that way and why it was put in that specific place. Doesn't mean there wouldn't be other ways to do it, but this is how that author did that. This is how Bianca did it. So I think that the second time you read, you read figuring out the how. You know, how did the author do this? You are going to essentially think about it this way. If you want to figure out how, I don't know, what's an electronic, like how, I'm just going to say a VCR because I'm that old, like how a VCR works. You're going to take it apart because I remember doing that as a kid in science class. Like we, we took apart a VCR to figure out the parts. I didn't understand it because I'm just, I was not that kid. I did not care about the VCR. I was like, this is boring. All I care is that my VCR plays the tape. But I love taking books apart. You're going to take that story apart. You're going to literally take out layer by layer and figure out how the author put it together. And you do that enough times, you start to train your brain to figure these things out way more quickly. In the beginning, it's going to take you a long time. It did for me anyway. Now, when I read books, I figure out the when, the why, the how, everything super fast, super, super fast because I've trained my brain to do it. And it's about training your brain. Reading like a writer, a lot of people think, oh, you know, I like to read for fun. I don't want to read like a writer because it's going to take the pleasure out of it. I disagree. I think that reading like a writer actually is more fun. Of course, this is an entirely subjective sin. People should like whatever they like. But for me, it makes the reading experience way more wonderful. And so much so that I have a very coded system of like, I will highlight metaphors with one color. I will highlight curiosity seeds with another color. And I have my notebook, my Mary Poppins notebook, where all the very best excerpts are, I, I just, I take them and I write them down and I have little tabs. You can see little tabs on the side. Obviously, everyone who's listening to this cannot see this, but it's, it's a notebook. There are tabs. There's really nothing to it. And the very best techniques go into this notebook because whenever I'm revising my own client's works and I want to tell them, oh, go read this book to figure that out, I have a very quick and easy resource that took me a long time to put together, of course. But yeah, it's a lot of work to read as a writer, but I don't think there's any job more fun in the world. This is my passion as well. I love dissecting stories, you know, to the point of obsessions. <laughs> I remember I was doing Hamilton and my friend's we're just looking at me and like, doesn't this make it not fun for you? Do you do you not enjoy the story now? I was like, no, this makes it more fun. Now I understand why things are happening, which is even more valuable to me. And ideally, you can re replicate that in helping someone else write something that might not going right in their novel, figure out. We, there is no original story, right? It's, we take these patterns and then we make them unique. So you have that original factor, of course, per story, but you have to figure out something is off for some reason. And the more you read, the more you're going to start to realize that. So I love that you do that. I, I do a book club too. And that's, that's the whole, that's the whole gig, right? It's like, how can we dissect the story so we can be grow our craft in that way and have more fun while we do it? Absolutely. All right. So going into a different direction, and I will say, I wanted to say, I'm, I'm going to say this now before I forget. CC has an amazing website and it's super organized. And if you are looking to query her and you want to look at comparable titles that you want to use, she literally has listed out dozens of books underneath the genres. 
So if you want CC, you should be doing your research and going to her website. She has spelled out her manuscript wish list for you, and she has spelled out comps. So go read those comps because they're obviously going to be good recommendations as well and use those in your query letter. I just want to say that before I forget. In a different direction, I was reading another article that you were interviewed in. It was an interview in Woman in Our Town, and you reflected on how a challenging part of the artistic process is learning and accepting that not writing is a necessary part of writing. And that really struck a chord with me because we do need breaks. So I'd love for you to explain what you meant by that and share how writers can identify when they need to not write and be brave enough to take advantage of that time. That was such a fun interview with women in our town. Like I enjoyed it so much. It was years ago and I still think about just like the great chemistry and questions. Uh, I really enjoy women in our town as a resource. So I don't think I would characterize the not writing as breaks just because I think that that kind of framing actually misses the the point, which is not writing just means that you're still working on your story unconsciously and sometimes even consciously. So it's still writing. It's just not active writing. Maybe Maybe that's how I can frame it. I don't, like I'm only focusing on the framing because I also think breaks are important. That's not what I'm talking about. You should go out, you should have dinner with your family. You should do, I don't know what you want to do for fun because everyone's different. But like for me, fun is important. Breaks are important. Rest is important. This is still true. But also, but also there's the moment of not writing that are actually still super, super writing focused. I know that sounds bananas, but I stand by it. I often figure out insights to my clients' works and ideas and breakthroughs about something that wasn't working. And now, oh my gosh, that's why it's not working. When I'm doing the dishes, when I'm going out for my mental health walks, this is like the most common scenario, by the way, my mental health walks is because walking is so helpful. When I'm sleeping, this is the annoying one because I wake up in the middle of the night and I have to write down the idea. This one I would not recommend, but it's also not something that I choose to do. When I'm essentially doing nothing, like when I'm sitting down reading a magazine article, I was reading an article the other day in Town and Country. I love Town and Country. Like probably shouldn't, but I do. It's super elitist. But it's fun. And and I was reading an article the other day in Town and Country and I was like, oh my gosh, like this one line made me think of this other thing. I don't even know how it made me think of this other thing. Your brain is forming associations without you even realizing it. And I was like, Eureka. You know, so that's what I was talking about in that interview. You cannot treat writing like you would treat a traditional nine to five job, in my opinion. You cannot sit down at nine, 9 a.m. and work until noon and then continue. That is just not how writing works. Because if you do that, you're going to have a whole bunch of words on the page because you will. But those words will not be your best words. And honestly, rewriting it might just be less productive because you're still rewriting something that the foundation isn't there. I think that not writing in the context of that Women in Our Town interview has to do with respecting the fact that your brain is still working even when you don't know it is. So yes, carve out that writing time. Yes, be protective of your writing time. This is something that Jennifer Close talks about a lot. And I so agree with her. Be protective of your writing time. But also, once your brain is like, I am done today. I cannot do this any longer. Cool. Remember that your brain is this amazing machine, not a machine, but whatever it is, this amazing thing that is going to keep on working in your story. And be ready for that. Be aware of that. And have a notebook handy or your phone or whatever it is that you do 
Because I promise you, if you are doing it right, you're going to come up with all these things. Oh my gosh, yes, that's what I have to do. Oh my gosh, yes. And that is super important. I agree wholeheartedly with you. And I love that you clarified my question and the answer to it because I'm exactly with you on that. We need these thinking breaks as well. I mentioned I love Fred McFackman. There was an interview somewhere that I was watching about him and he said, someone asked him about what's your writing process? And his answer was, I don't think I have a writing process, but I do have a thinking process. And he said, you need to spend at least one hour a day just in your thoughts, thinking about the story. And walks are big. You'll see a lot of writers who are on walks. I've read somewhere along the lines. I don't know where it was now, but our brains work best at three miles per hour. So I am a huge advocate for walks, rain or shine. We're going outside. And I love that you're encouraging writers to not punish themselves in a nine to five setting if that doesn't work for them that they can have these other ways of creating their story just as meaningfully and efficiently if they can just find whatever works for them. You brainstorm with your clients sometimes, is that right? Let's hear about those brainstorming sessions, like how it's maybe a little way of not writing, but still writing is a brainstorm session. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I do. It's Oh, gosh. I, I don't think I can say it's my favorite part of the job, only because every week I'm saying that the different part of my job is my favorite part. I just love my job. But it's definitely one of the favorites because I love creating. I love crafting. I love it. And I love coming up with ideas and brainstorming sessions. To your point, very much what we're doing here, only we're brainstorming elements of writing. Brainstorming sessions work with my clients because my clients trust me. I trust them. And because within that trust amazing things can happen. You know why? Because when you truly trust someone and you're in a safe space, there are no wrong answers. Like you can say banana, watermelon, peaches to to answer the question of, you know, where should the character go now? That is not even a logical thing. It doesn't matter. Just let your brain talk. We just let our unconscious and our consciousness and all these other elements of our brain that I do not understand because I'm not a neuroscientist, but we just let them be. And it is safe. And I have a whiteboard. And maybe you can see it behind me where like I'll write down ideas and I'm usually pacing. So usually this is not on Zoom or if it is, I have my wireless headphones and I'm pacing and I'm talking and I'm writing. And again, I'll write bananas if I have to write bananas. It does not matter. There are no wrong answers. It's about coming up with whatever it is that you need to come up with, which actually brings me to a really important point, which is brainstorming sessions need purpose for me. It Maybe not for other people, but for me, What is our goal here? And it's okay if we're not talking about the goal, but we have to set that intention in the beginning. So our goal here is to figure out the B plot for a book. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe because, you know, the current B plot is not working. Or maybe it's to figure out if I'm working on a sequel with a client. So what's the story going to be? It can be be that incipient. It can be that like early on to the process. It can be anything. And then it's just about letting our minds roam free, writing down thoughts, not everything, just thoughts. You can also record yourself. I'm a big fan of recording yourself. And then letting your brain figure out, not figure out, and then just letting it rest in your mind, you know? Just taking some time. The the solutions to things will not necessarily come out of brainstorming sessions in a very clear way. I remember figuring out with a client, I can't say what it was, it's too specific to her book, so everyone's gonna know, but we were figuring something out and we had two brainstorming sessions and we left both of them being like, yeah, this was fun, but like, we don't have solution. And then of course it came to me in the middle of the night. And it wouldn't have come to me in the middle of the night where not for those sessions. I texted her in the middle of the night. I did it. I knew she was awake because like she's in the, on the West Coast, so it's fine. But I texted her and she was like, that's it. That's it. That's it. And it's not that I came up with the idea because I didn't. It's her work 
made me think of this. Yes. And our talks made me think of this. So it's a collaborative, wonderful, fun. Oh my gosh, it is so fun. It doesn't happen all that often because, you know, I don't write the book. My clients write the books. But when it does happen, it's so much fun. Absolutely. The eureka moments are huge. That's part of the biggest triumphs in the writing process. And by the way, listeners, uh, Cece really knows what she's talking about here too. She also wrote a novel, The Sunset Sisters. You did. You have been in the process as well. So she speaks from both areas of agenting and writing. She understands both sides of the coin. So she knows what she's talking about. In that same article, we talked about Women in Our Town. That was a great article. And I am going to include it in the show notes because it's a wonderful article. You also had a question. This will be, I know we're nearing the end of time. So we're going to go to lightning three in just a second, but I want to sneak this one in here. There's a topic that you discussed about our awareness of our privileges and how this can prevent writers from engaging in harmful false comparisons. And you had an amazing quote. You said, understanding how you are privileged is key to being an industrious writer, not only because it prompts feelings of gratitude and hopefully makes you less prone to arrogance, but because it will keep you from engaging in false comparables. You cannot compare someone who is fortunate enough to have a partner who is able to support them financially to someone who has to pay all of their bills by themselves. So, I mean, you really should just, listeners, if you're listening to this, you really should just go read her, her feedback here and I'm, I'm, because it's wonderful and it's eye-opening and really important to take into heart and into our minds and conscientious of how we behave in all of our worlds. But I would love for you to just speak to that a little bit more and what you're getting at with that comment and how writers can take that to heart as they go into this industry. Absolutely. I, we do talk a lot about privilege nowadays compared to, to before. I'm not sure that we talk about it in the way that, in my view, is the most meaningful necessarily. I remember a conversation with my good friends. We were oddly having drinks at Soho House. And I think we were a few glasses of wine in when I asked everyone, what is your greatest privilege? And I don't want you to say things like food and shelter, because of course, these things are tremendous privileges. Of course. Oh my gosh. But everyone at the table had that and had always had that. I knew, like, these are my friends, so I knew their background. I want you to focus on the things that you have that either your past self didn't have because you're comparing you to you or that others around you don't have. And not, again, not because other things are not privileges, but because it behooves you to really, really dig and really, really figure out what that privilege is. And we each have, and we're, um, this is not a round table of writers. This was just my friends. Um, we were just having fun. And the answers were so enlightening. It just, it was such a moment of vulnerability and trust and sharing that I still think about. This was pre-pandemic, by the way. This was a long time ago. But it was, it was very meaningful to me. And to extrapolate from that experience, I would encourage all writers to sit with their group of writers. And, you know, you don't even have to say it out loud if you don't want to. I think it's good too, but I don't think you have to because it's not about it's not about brownie points. It's not about competition. That's not what it's about. It's about thinking to yourself within my writing community. I encourage you to have one. What is my greatest privilege as a writer? And maybe that privilege is something like I talked about in that interview, which is maybe you are in the fortunate position of being able to write without having to worry how to pay the bills. Or maybe your greatest privilege is that you had a dad who made you love reading so much that you as a kid, devoured all the books and you're now an encyclopedia of books and that makes you much better at your job. Whatever your greatest privilege is, I encourage you to think about it, not just in relation to objective greatest privileges, but also in comparison to others. Not because the goal is comparison, but rather because that 
prompts you to dig to go back to my story about my friends and when we were grabbing drinks, we would have all said food and shelter if we hadn't dug deeper. And when we did dig deeper, we actually shared really interesting things. I'll share mine because I won't share other people's, but my greatest privilege, I said, was my relationship with food. Like I have a great relationship with food. And I only found out that that was even a thing in terms of being a privilege when I was an adult. Because I started noticing that not everyone around me did. And I'm so grateful for that. I owe that in huge part to my grandmother, but also kind of just luck, right? I ended up having a good relationship with food. I haven't dissected it, but I'm mindful of that. And it makes me feel like a more examined human being. And so as a writer, I would just encourage you to be like, okay, so what is my greatest privilege as a writer? What do I have that isn't something that my peers have? And hopefully that'll make you feel grateful. Hopefully that'll make you feel more empathy towards everyone else around you and also allow yourself to feel more empathy towards yourself. But hopefully also if you are able to share it and you know, you shouldn't if you're not comfortable, but maybe you'll find out this other thing that your friend has or your, your peer has, and you'll be able to bond over that. And to, again, to go back to the non-writing situation, my friend who does not have a good relationship with food, she later told me, TC, can I say, when I see you ordering two desserts, it makes me so happy. Like, I want to order two desserts too. And it's it's not that simple because, oh my gosh, I don't mean to sound reductive, but I was inspired by their answers, which I will not share because, you know, I don't want to do that. But their answers inspired me. So maybe hopefully the goal isn't just gratitude and awareness. Maybe the goal is also inspiration and empowerment. Wow. That's going to sit with me for a long time. I have to think about what my greatest privilege is now, because I think that that self-reflection is really valuable work. And I do think it, it brings gratitude, but also it can bring inspiration. And just like that has brought inspiration in the vulnerability of being in that situation with your friends, I find that is what books do a lot too. It helps us be vulnerable. It helps us inspire empathy and awareness from this place, not of looking at ourselves with shame, but knowing that we are human and this is something that we can learn and grow from. And when you can discuss that with people, that's only going to increase that growth and connectedness. So, wow, I, yeah, I'm going to, that one, see, I, I'm kind of speechless with this one. I'm going to have to sit on that a lot, but you really, really amazing answer. Okay. So we are at the end of the podcast. At the end of the podcast, I do like to do a lightning three. Ideally, you can answer these questions in one sentence. And if you can't, there's no harm, no foul here. I am able to. It'll be the first time in my life that I answer. <laughs> You'll get all the gold stars. <laughs> More just a fun way of rounding up the podcast at the end with the lightning three. But we'll go into that if you're ready. And the first question is, you are a wonderful co-host of This Shit No One Tells You About Writing, this amazing podcast that is extremely wildly popular and helpful to writers. So yay, bravo to that. Out of that experience... What is one thing that really has changed your life in a way that you've been able to work with clients and reach writers and readers in a way that has been meaningful to you? What's one big thing that you've taken away as being a co-host? Messages from the writing community about how the podcast has made a difference in their lives and sometimes the suggestions too. The collaborative experience, we are three co-hosts, but we're actually hundreds, maybe we're thousands, I don't know. We are however many listeners we have because everyone makes the podcast what it is. Beautifully said. Question number two is, what do you think makes you unique as a literary agent? And why would anyone who's writing 
adult fiction in a variety of ways want to come right to you, what are you going to do for them? I can't fix publishing because if I could, believe me, I would, but I will always make you feel like you have the fiercest advocate in your corner. You will never feel alone, not if you're my client. You will always feel safe and seen and supported. Beautiful. Let's piggyback off that. You said there are things to fix with publishing. If you could see one thing resolved, yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of things that we could fix with publishing, right? I see it's a podcast, you don't see it, but yes, we're nodding. We're both nodding. If there is one thing that you could see resolved in this upcoming year that has potential to being resolved or at least improved upon, what would that be? Money, more money for everyone, more money for entry-level publishing employees. HarperCollins is currently striking, hoping to, among other things, get more money. There are way more demands than that, important demand. But if this were not an industry that is notorious for underpaying people, we would have more quality, more diversity, more everything that is good. Mm -hmm. Because whether I want it or not, we live in a capitalist society, so money matters. How can agents and writers play a role in making sure that more people are guaranteed more money? That is not something I can answer in one line. Yeah, uh, That's just, uh, that would be, uh, I mean, I think to start, an awareness is important. And I think there are different answers for different people. So perhaps the answer might be, how much power do you have? You, the individual you, what can you do today? Whether that's donating to the HarperCollins strike, whether that's posting about the fact that you love books, but you want to see people get paid on social media, whether it's writing letters to publishers. Like I, I don't know because it really depends on how much power each person has in their own situation and also what they can't do because not everyone is in a position to be able to do things because they might suffer consequences of that. But I think it's about asking yourself the question, what can I do this week? And then doing it. Because if everyone does it, it's like recycling, right? If we all do it even a little bit, that helps. That's a start. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you. And that's the end of my questions for you. So Cece, thank you so much. I know I'm going to have a lot of fun editing this one because there's a lot to absorb and it's made me think a lot about how I exist in this world of publishing and how we all exist in this world of publishing as writers, as agents, whatever role you're is and how they all work together. So thank you for that, for such an insightful discussion. I so appreciate your time and I do really believe that you see people. So I hope that everyone who has listened to this and felt like CC is the agent for you, I do think she sees you. So polish up that manuscript and send it her way. Thank you so much for having me. I loved all your questions and I just had the best time. Thank you again. Thank you so much for coming back for another conversation on Lit Match. You can learn more about CC, PS Literary Agency, and how to query CC in the show notes. I love today's conversation. As you can tell, there are spots where I said, man, I'm going to love editing this because I have to think about the answers that she gave. I hope that that's exactly how you felt and that you were pulled into this conversation in a way that helps you reflect not only on your writing process, but if Cece is the dream agent and best advocate for your publishing career. I mentioned in the introduction that I will be including links to Cece's website. It does have her manuscript wish list. And like I said, during the podcast interview, literally she has spelled out comparable titles for you. So if your book is on that comparable title list of hers, and you are writing adult fiction or nonfiction that fits CeCe's taste, definitely put her into your literary agent research spreadsheet and star her so that she is high on your priority list to query. 
I also will include the links to the two articles that I mentioned where she was interviewed, Latinos in Publishing and Women in Our Town. They're both fantastic articles. I do encourage you to go read them. It just gives you even more to learn about CC and about publishing and about writing. Truly a wealth of knowledge. Finally, I'd like to say again, thank you so much for listening to Lit Match and for supporting me as I bring you this content in this podcast. This podcast is nothing without you. And I so appreciate you coming up consistently to sit here and be with me and to learn from the writer's perspective, from the editor's perspective, whatever perspective you're coming from, and taking those tips and advice mindfully into your writing process. I'm so grateful for this community, and I will continue to enthusiastically produce that content knowing that you are there and eager to listen. If you've got a lot out of the show and you haven't had a chance yet to rate or review it, I do so appreciate anyone who takes a couple minutes to rate and review the show. What this does is this signals to iTunes that this podcast matters. And of course, if you can share it with any of your writer friends on other social media platforms, feel free to tag me at Abigail Kate Perry. This means so much to me that you're helping me reach more writers like you who want to learn how to grow their writing craft and alleviate any stress with the literary agent research process so that you are confident that you are querying the best advocates for you. Of course, some of the best news that I can hear from listeners is when they sign with that literary agent who is their best match and continue news about book deals and letting me know when their book comes out. I am here to support you and I absolutely would love to hear when you have signed with that literary agent. I am cheering you on always. If you're in the writing process, persevere, be persistent as Cece said. And if you're in the querying process, I know it's competitive. I know it can be tough, but I am here rooting for you. And if you ever need help, just reach out to me. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. Let me know what's going on. Let me know if there's content that I can bring you to help with whatever process you're in, the writing or the querying process. I will do my best to answer all emails that I get and I will do my best to provide that content for you. And if you sign up for my email list at abigailkperry.com, you will be the first to know when I have new content. So head over to my website, www.abigailkperry.com and sign up so that you're the first to hear that latest news. Until then, happy writing, and I cannot wait to celebrate your book when it comes out. <laughs>